This morning, as we ease our way back into the flow of John chapter 19, I want to back up just a few verses and address three things that we weren't really able to discuss last Sunday. Last Sunday was Easter, our Easter service. So there was a few things that we weren't able to get to, dive into. I want to back up and cover those things this morning. Three things in particular, if you're a note taker. I want to talk about the motivations of this mob. Again, the, the context, the setting, is this is Jesus' final day. There was a Last Supper he shared with his disciples. He's been arrested. He's experienced several trials in the middle of the night. Three in front of the Jewish establishment, then three in front of Pontius Pilate, two in front of Pontius Pilate, one in front of Herod. There's an angry mob that's gathered outside crying out for Jesus to be crucified. He's been set up. So I want to talk about the motivations behind this mob. I also want to take some time and discuss the significance of the location that Jesus was crucified, that being Golgotha, before finally wrapping things up by discussing the fate of really a sad man in our story, uh, this gentleman Pontius Pilate. So first, let's consider the motivations of the mob who have come to the praetorium that morning adamant that Jesus be crucified and this known criminal, this robber, this revolutionary, this murderer, Barabbas, be released. To begin with, there are some who try to make the case that it was the same crowd who had gathered on Palm Sunday just a few days before, the same crowd that had cried out as Jesus is making his entry into the city, Hosanna, Hosanna the King, that were now demanding Pilate crucify him. That being said, I'm not sure that's a fair assertion. Now, though true, most of those who had amassed this morning were present for Jesus' triumphal entry. Everyone knew what was happening. I think it's important you keep in mind, though, as you're unpacking and diving into the motivations of the mob, that it's early in the morning when all of these things are happening. And the reason that's significant is that a gathering of such a crowd was odd, just to say the least. Aside from that, the gospel records concerning the mob itself seem to indicate that there was a bit of astroturfing involved. Now, if you're not familiar with the term astroturfing, uh, astroturf, it looks like grass, but it's fake. Sometimes uh, there's the appearance of something genuine. When you dig below the surface, you find out that it's really not what it seems to be, astroturfing. Now, on two occasions... In our text, in John's Gospel, we find recorded that Pilate's interactions with this crowd seem to have been motivated by others. Look back at verse 6 of chapter 19. We read, therefore, notice, when the chief priests, this is plural, Annas and Caiaphas, and the officers saw Jesus, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Then, after trying to appease the bloodthirst of this mob by having Jesus scourged, verses 14 and 15 records that Pilate then says to the Jews, he brings Jesus out, he says, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? Now notice, the chief priest then answered, We have no king but Caesar. Aside from these, these interesting details provided in John's record, in Matthew 15, and again in Matthew, um, in Mark 15, and again in Matthew 27, we actually read how it was, quote, the chief priests and elders who persuaded the multitudes that they should seek for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. 
In fact, in his summary of the entire scene, Luke tells us in chapter 23, verse 23, that the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. Now, the reason that this is important centers on the fact that you need to realize Jesus wasn't crucified because of the fickle emotions of an out-of-control mob. But rather, he was crucified via the intentional actions of the religious establishment. This was not an accident. Things didn't spiral out of control. This was all intended and designed. It's actually likely that both Annas and Caiaphas, these high priests, recruited a mob to show up early in the morning in front of Pilate to make it seem like there was an organic outcry against Jesus when there really wasn't. Aside from the underhanded nature of such a ploy, what makes the actions of these men all the more egregious is the fact the religious establishment had been charged by God to look out for the Savior. It was their job to be on the lookout for the Messiah. You see, in kind of this grand twist of irony to the entire story is the fact that these men knowingly rejected a man who was likely their Messiah, and beyond rejecting him, had him crucified. And note, the religious leaders did not reject Jesus because they lacked enough evidence. On numerous occasions throughout the Gospels, you'll actually read how the religious leaders specifically came to evaluate Jesus and his ministry when he was in Galilee. And each time they came, each time they heard him, each time they watched the miracles, they were A, unable to find any fault with him, and B, they were astonished at his teaching. Even during their trial against Jesus, this kangaroo court, this evening, we're told in Mark 14 that they struggled to make a case. We're told that the chief priests and all the council, they sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But then we're told they found none. For many bore false witness against Jesus and their testimonies did not agree. It's amazing that these men, the religious men, they weren't acting out of ignorance they weren't acting out of a lack of revelation as if they just didn't know or with limited knowledge of Jesus. The truth, the tough truth, is these men demanded Jesus be crucified knowing full well who he was. They had been given the revelation of the scriptures they had seen with their own eyes prophecy fulfilled in their midst, and yet they cried out, crucify him, crucify him, anyway. And the question begs, doesn't it? Why would these religious men be so resistant to Jesus? First, there's no question that Jesus was a threat. He was a threat to their authority. He was a threat to their way of living. After years under Roman occupation, the Jewish religious establishment had not only adapted to the dynamic, but they were thriving under Roman rule. For both Annas and Caiaphas, they knew as long as they kept the peace, their relationship with Rome would continue to prove mutually beneficial. They were incredibly wealthy. 
because of this charade. Jesus' growing popularity, there is no doubt, was becoming a political liability for them. Jesus was becoming a threat to their power, a threat to their influence over the people, a threat to their wealth. You know, if we're speaking truthfully this morning, many reject Jesus, I have found, not for intellectual reasons. <laughs> they reject Jesus for practical ones. Simply stated, people reject Jesus because they, they don't want to change the way that they're living their lives. And they don't want to cede power to Jesus over their lifestyle choices. If these religious leaders had accepted Jesus as their Messiah, the implications were more than they were willing to accept. For in the moment they accepted Jesus, he would automatically possess the authority to tell them what to do. And I have found that many people resist Jesus for the same reason. It's not that they don't believe who Jesus is. They just don't want to submit to an authority that doesn't have their name on it. People want to rule their own lives. Call their own shots. Be the captain of their own ship. Master of their own destiny. Most people want to do what they want when they want to do it. People want to live free of accountability. For most, the hang-up tends to boil down to this one reality. That if you actually accept Jesus as the Son of God, as your God, then you'll have to in turn surrender your life. You'll have to hand over the reins. It's now a dynamic where it's His will above your will. His authority concerning your behaviors now takes precedent. In such a dynamic, you can no longer live to please yourself. If Jesus is your God, and more specifically your Savior, well now there's the context of living to please Him. As you examine just broadly the gospel record, you're going to discover that a lot of people encountered Jesus and experienced a radical change. But you'll notice a general characteristic about those people. They came humbly wanting to change. They wanted their life to change. These were people sick of the status quo. They came to Jesus desiring, craving, wanting more than anything, something better. A better life, a better existence, one with meaning and purpose. They wanted salvation. And so they came and they accepted the only person who could save them, the only one who could set them free. Freedom is only sought from the person who understands they're living in bondage. But there was one other group. One other group who were always around Jesus, but in whom Jesus never changed. And that was this group of religious leaders, who in the end not just reject Jesus because he was a threat to their authority, but they demand he die. Secondly, there is no question that these men resisted and rejected Jesus because he challenged their religious system. A religious system that had established this kind of moral hierarchy. These were devout men. Yes, they were corrupt, they were wicked, but they were devout religiously. And they took pride in this works-based system that combined the law with their traditions. They were good at obeying these things because they had created them. 
And you know, it's not an accident that throughout his ministry, Jesus was constantly poking holes in this scheme. Kind of brazenly, actually. I mean, if, if, you, if you just look at the person of Jesus and just how he handled himself, the way Jesus lived just perfectly illustrated how wicked these men actually were. They were supposed to be the best, the best of society. And yet compared to Jesus, they had fallen short of God's glory, no doubt. And the things that Jesus taught, he was constantly calling out the fact that their religion had only produced a false morality. In Jesus' activities, he showed open disregard for these traditions, specifically the Sabbath. Ultimately, Jesus' associations, who he hung out with, who he surrounded himself with, he contrasted their judgment and bigotry of sinners. He contrasted it with an abundance of love and grace. John, as we've already seen in, in writing kind of a summary of Jesus' entire earthly ministry, he says in John 1 verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The problem with these Jewish religious men and their system was that they had created a framework. A framework whereby they could achieve God's approval without God's direct involvement. It was man-centric. Man-dependent. And sadly, I have found that there are many people who resist and reject Jesus for the same reason. Fundamentally, they just don't want to admit that they need help and they resist acknowledging that they aren't as good a person as they think they are. It takes humility. We're told in the scriptures that God gives grace to whom? The humble. Fundamentally, humility is essential to receiving grace, but God resists the proud, often because it's the proud that resist Him. See, these men, they had created a religious system that allowed them to worship gods of their own choosing, all the while resisting a Savior that they really need. And here is a sad but true reality, illustrated perfectly by this story, that the soul that rejects Jesus as their Savior will possess the tongue that cries out, away with Him. And yet the difficult thing for such a tormented soul will be the day in which they actually need a Savior that they will hear from Him, depart from me, for I never knew you. The motivations of the mob. Now, let's look at something else. Back in verse 16 and 18, look at the text. John writes for us that Pilate delivered Jesus to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. So much happening. Jesus, bearing his cross, we're told by John, went out to a place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. And it was there that they crucified Jesus. Now in the Greek, this phrase, the place of the skull, it's, it's literally or originally cranio topas. Now, from the Greek to the Latin, we then get the phrase Calvaria locus, from which we get our English word Calvary. Cranium, skull, Calvary, all the same word. In his account, John tells us that this place, Calvary, Golgotha, 
where Jesus was crucified in its day was known as Golgotha. Now, while the exact location of Calvary isn't known, there are several theories. And you'll have to just excuse me as your pastor. I'm about to get really geeky for probably like the next 15 minutes. So just bear with me. I find it interesting. Hopefully you'll find it interesting. And if you don't, you can just start your own church. Golgotha. There's a few interpretations, a few theories. There are some who believe that Golgotha is it's just simply a descriptive term that referenced a specific hillside outside of Jerusalem that resembled a skull, likely had a, a human face kind of into the hillside. And that's all that it was. Just a hill that looked like a skull with a face on it. Now, while not officially recognized by any, any particular church, there are many Protestants today that believe a rock face that looks like a skull located northwest of the city of Jerusalem near the traditional garden tomb. Many Protestants believe that it's the actual site of Golgotha for no other reason than it looks like it's a skull. Aside from this, Golgotha can be translated as Golgotha or Mount of Execution meaning that others see this reference as being nothing more than just a mountain outside of the city that's located near a cemetery. The most interesting of all the theories states that because Golgotha is a contraction of Goliath of Gath, that it's actually the location where King David buried the head of the giant. Historically, the location of Golgotha, or Calvary, was originally determined by a woman named Helena, the mother of Constantine. She determined, with no archaeological experience at all, that Golgotha was in the western part of Jerusalem proper. She had a particular location, and she commemorated this holy spot in 325 AD by building the Church of the Holy Sepulchre on that location. Now, as you study this particular topic, you'll discover that there are four biblical necessities for the location of Golgotha. Four things that have to be included. One, as a place of execution. Golgotha had to be outside of Jerusalem, outside the gates, but still close enough to be, to be used. It had to be in walking distance, less than a mile. Number two, as a place for specifically Roman executions, Golgotha would, would have to be situated along a common roadway coming in and out of Jerusalem. So it has to be outside of the city's close, but it has to be on a major highway. That's how the Romans did crucifixions. Thirdly, because a wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea ends up procuring the body of Christ and lays him in his tomb before the start of the Sabbath, it's only logical that Golgotha had to be situated near an expensive tomb, specifically located in a garden. In fact, three days later, upon her arrival, Mary Magdalene, we're told, actually mistakes Jesus as a gardener. The fourth necessity, according to Mark 15, verses 38 and 39, is that from the location of the crucifixion, so wherever Golgotha was, Calvary, from that location, one would be able to peer into the inner courts of the temple. 
Let me read you what Mark writes. He says, Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is when Jesus died. So when the centurion, who stood opposite Jesus, giving us his location, saw that, the tearing of the veil, and that's present tense. Jesus cried out, breathed his last, but this man, the centurion, makes this declaration, truly this man was the Son of God. Early church father, early church father Tatian writes in 100, 160 A.D., he says, quote, And immediately the face of the door of the temple was rent into two parts from top to bottom, and the officers of the foot soldiers, and they that were with him who were guarding Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things which came to pass, feared greatly, praised God, and said, This man was righteous, and truly he was the Son of God. And all the multitudes that, that were come together to the site, this being the crucifixion, when they saw what came to pass, they returned and they smote on their breasts. It's clear historically that wherever Golgotha was, you had to be able to peer into the temple to see the veil separating the Holy of Holies from mankind being torn. Now, the problem with both the location of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre as well as this popular location of Protestants is that neither location factors in the ability of those at the cross on Calvary to view into the temple to see the tearing of the veil. In fact, both of those locations, it's impossible. With that in mind, I'm convinced that the only location consistent with the biblical requirements for Golgotha is actually the Mount of Olives. Consider, again, quickly. One, the Mount of Olives was located outside the city gates, but very close, within a mile. Two, the Mount of Olives was situated on a popular highway. Matter of fact, it was the main thoroughfare that connected Jerusalem with the Jordan Valley. Three, located at the southern base of the Mount of Olives was what? Was a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. But beyond that, there's actually a graveyard in conjunction with the, the Garden of Gethsemane, specifically designated for the nobility of Jerusalem. You can go see these tombs today, and they date back to the first century. Number four, since the temple faced east, the Mount of Olives was located due east, the only place that you would be able to peer into the temple in order to witness the tearing of the veil, as well as see Jesus breathe his last, would be from the peak of the Mount of Olives. The Jewish Mishnah writes that the temple walls were high, save only, interestingly, the eastern wall. Because the high priest that burns the red heifer and stands on top of the Mount of Olives should be able to look directly into the entrance of the sanctuary when the blood of the red heifer is sprinkled. The point is that the only possible location to see into the temple is from the Mount of Olives. Okay, Pastor Zach, sounds cool. Why do we care? Why does this even matter? I'm going to tell you why it matters. First, if Golgotha was located on the Mount of Olives, the geographic ramifications of Jesus' journey to the cross are much more powerful than if the location was anywhere else. Picture the scene. Jesus has been sentenced by Pilate to be crucified. And from the declaration, Jesus would be led from the fortress of Antonio to the Mount of Olives, meaning he would then have exited the city through the north gate. 
which was called the Sheep Gate. And from there, Jesus would once again find himself crossing what? The Kidron Valley, where the brook is filled with, with blood. Jesus would cross the blood of the sacrifice before heading up the Mount of Olives. Imagine that, the perfect Lamb of God passing out the Sheep Gate through the blood of the Passover sacrifices to then be sacrificed himself. That's a powerful picture, isn't it? Additionally, the symbolism then of Jesus, a bloody mess, crossing through the blood of the sacrifices, his blood as the Lamb of God mixing with the blood of the other lambs. It just reinforces the significance of the moment and why it happens on Passover. The second reason Jesus dying on the Mount of Olives is so important, ties directly into the Levitical procedures concerning the sacrifice of the red heifer. And this is where we're going to get geeky. Numbers chapter 19. You know, the, probably the section that you're reading in your morning devotionals earlier this week. You know, we all spend time in the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 19. I want to read you a section of Scripture. We're told that the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, this is the ordinance of the law, which the Lord has commanded, saying, speak to the children of Israel, that they bring you a red heifer without blemish, in which there is no defect, and on which a yoke has never come. You shall give it to Eleazar the priest, that he may take it outside the camp, and it shall be slaughtered before him. And Eleazar the priest shall take some of the blood with his finger and sprinkle some of the blood seven times directly in front of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the heifer, I love saying the word heifer. Then the heifer shall be burned in its sight, its hind, its flesh, its blood, and its offal shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop, and scarlet, and cast them into the midst of the fire, burning the heifer. Then a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer, and store them outside of the camp in a clean place, and they shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel for the water purification. It is for the purifying from sin. You got that? Sweet. We can move on. Let me unpack it. According to this passage, in the dedication of the tabernacle, a red heifer without spot, without yoke, was to be slaughtered outside of the camp of Israel. Its blood then used to purify the place of meeting, and then the body burned. The ashes would be collected and then preserved for future use for the purification of sin for anyone who incurred defilement through contact with the dead. Now what's interesting is that this unique offering was not something that regularly happened. The sacrifice only occurred when the tabernacle was dedicated and then later when the temple was dedicated. You see, the ashes of the red heifer were viewed as being sufficient for all the people and the one-time sacrifice Universal. See, when a person needed purification, who had had contact with the dead, a fresh heifer was not required to be sacrificed. You see, 
It was one sacrifice, one heifer that was then sufficient for all. Now, while in the context of Numbers 19 is the Exodus, and specifically the tabernacle, and in that context, the, this offering was to occur outside the camp. Once the Jews had settled into the land and built the temple, no longer a temporary dwelling, the tabernacle, now a physical dwelling, the temple, the sacrifice of the red heifer, again, according to the Mishnah, yes, it's to occur outside of the camp, but according to the Mishnah, it's outside the camp in a very specific place, the Mount of Olives. Again, I'll read you what the Mishnah states. The temple walls were high, save only the eastern wall, because the high priest that burns the red heifer has to stand on the top of the Mount of Olives so that he can look directly into the sanctuary when the blood of the heifer is sprinkled. See, like the red heifer, Jesus here, he's taken outside the camp. He's taken to the Mount of Olives to be sacrificed once and for all. To do what? To purify man of sin. And just like the red heifer, Jesus was what? Without spot. He was utterly sinless. And without yoke, meaning that Jesus went willingly. But it's this one-time sacrifice that has universal implications. A one-time sacrifice that's permanent and sufficient for all. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, we read of Jesus. Because Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. Now notice, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats, and notice, and the ashes of the heifer, sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of flesh, how much more shall the blood of Jesus, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You know, in many ways... This actual procedure, the sacrifice, what we read in, in Numbers 19, the sacrifice of the red heifer presents a beautiful picture of the cross. Again, look back. Once the heifer was killed, we read specifically that the priests were commanded to take cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet and cast them into the midst of the burning fire with the heifer. You know, historically, the cedars of Lebanon, all wood being used in this time period, specifically wood for a cross, would have been cedar. How interesting that Jesus was crucified on a cross made of cedar. And that then while on the cross, we're told in another gospel account that he was offered drink from what? The hyssop branch. And oh, how the red scarlet, the color, how it pictures the cleansing blood of Jesus. Cedar, hyssop, and scarlet. I also don't find it to be an accident that the act of offering the first red heifer in order to purify the earthly, earthly dwelling place of God, you notice it wasn't designated to Moses. And Moses represented what? He represents the law. Oh, but that was not a task for him. Nor was the task given to Aaron. And Aaron represented the priesthood. Not the law and not the priesthood. Instead, the task was given. Notice, 
The task was given not to Moses and not to Aaron, but to Aaron's son, a mysterious man named Eleazar. And the Hebrew Eleazar means God has helped, or literally, the helper of God. Sound familiar? And much the same way as the sacrifice of the red heifer. Not only is Jesus' one-time sacrifice that does it satisfy the penalty of your sin and the death that results, but how fascinating that it is Eleazar, not the law and not the priesthood, but the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the Helper, that takes the blood and purifies you and I as what? As not a tabernacle, but as temples of the living God. 2 Corinthians 6, 16. The third reason I think Jesus dying on the Mount of Olives is so significant is that of the 15 times this mountain is referenced in Scripture. The 15 times you find the Mount of Olives in Scripture, every single time it speaks of one thing. Always. It speaks of separation. In Ezekiel, when the prophet sees the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah glory of the Lord that was in the Holy of Holies, Ezekiel sees it depart. Leave the Holy of Holies. It exits the temple. Leaves the holy city. And then Ezekiel says that the glory of the Lord stops above the mountain east of it before going up to heaven, the Mount of Olives. Matthew Henry writes that of this moment that God separated himself from the vileness of his people, a separation on the Mount of Olives. You know, every time Jesus visited the Mount of Olives, he reinforces the symbolism of separation. In the Garden of Gethsemane, what does he do? He's preparing himself for his coming arrest and execution, but he separates himself from the disciples to spend time in prayer. Later on in the story, when Jesus ascends to heaven, he ascends to heaven from where? The Mount of Olives. Physically separating himself from the church in order to send the Spirit in his place. Prophetically, Jesus, when he returns to establish his kingdom, touches down, you want to guess? on the Mount of Olives. And what does he immediately do? He separates humanity, the elect from the wicked. But beyond that, Zechariah the prophet, he says that the Mount of Olives in this moment, it splits in two. It separates. And from that separation flows a spring of water that rushes forth out the Kidron Valley down to the Dead Sea to restore the earth. Geographically, the Mount of Olives literally is about separation. It's a mountain separated. The north summit from the southern summit by a small, narrow inlet. Again, imagine the imagery here. As Jesus hangs on a cross, on Calvary, located on the Mount of Olives, He experiences what? The ultimate separation from His Father. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the sin of the world comes upon his shoulders when he becomes sin for us. And yet, it will be from that separation that would flow living water throughout the earth to permanently quench man's thirst by restoring him to God. There is no question Golgotha, being on the Mount of Olives, is not only more in line with the biblical requirements of the location and more consistent with Levitical typology of the red heifer, 
But the location here provides deeper spiritual meaning to Jesus' journey and crucifixion and experience. If indeed the Mount of Olives is the location of Golgotha, the journey to the cross, it deepens and its meaning. And the experience of Jesus on the cross becomes deeply symbolic. Verse 19, let's get into some fresh text. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews. But he said, I am the King of the Jews. But Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. In Roman culture, we know that it was customary that the condemned would have their crimes written down and hung on a plaque around their neck. Then once crucified, that sign would be taken and nailed above the guilty party so that onlookers would know for what reason the individual had been executed. We often get the idea of a Roman crucifixion of Jesus on the cross being way high up in the air. Very difficult to read something. No, a Roman cross was just a few feet off the ground, so you could look into the eyes of the condemned. Most died, if not from suffocation during a crucifixion, from being eaten by something, whether it be jackals or birds of air. In many ways, a Roman crucifixion, it's not just about executing a person. A Roman crucifixion was a PR event aimed at letting the masses know what would happen to a revolutionary or someone that was a criminal. In Jesus' case, it's worth pointing out that Pilate here, he doesn't write down a specific crime. He doesn't at all. In fact, all Pilate writes is the truth. He writes down Jesus of Nazareth, which is who he was, and then he says the king of the Jews. It's definitive. Now, some have argued that within the context that Jesus is still wearing a crown of thorns, that the intent of such a plaque was to mock Jesus. And there's probably a case to be made there. But I think it's, it, it, it goes much deeper than that. In fact, I think that John, knowing that that was a traditional perspective, gives us a few more details just to clear up confusion. Tells us something that the other gospel writers don't. Pilate writes this of Jesus, and in response to it, the chief priests, they come in, with an official objection. No, 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 you can't do that, Pilate. They didn't like the implications, and they want Pilate to change it. You can't say he's the king of the Jews. Instead, change it that he said or claimed to be the king of the Jews. And what does Pilate respond? How does he respond? He says, what I have written, I have written. <laughs> you get the sense that Pilate knows he's played a central role in the most incredible of tragedies. And with the time remaining, we really have to talk about Pilate because he walks off the scene. Because frankly, Pilate is really a tragedy in his own right. You know, we noted last Sunday, but Pilate knew that Jesus was completely innocent. Three times he declares it. He knows Jesus is innocent. Aside from this, Pilate has done everything in his power to try to avoid sentencing Jesus to a crucifixion. Pilate detests the whole situation. 
He's been placed in a dynamic he wants nothing to do with. And yet, in the end, he cows to political pressure, goes against his conscience. He sentences Jesus to be crucified anyway. And Pilate, what does he do? He literally tries to wash his hands of the matter. But history seems to indicate that Pilate will be forever known. In fact, he'll never be able to escape the reality he made this decision to have Jesus crucified. For the rest of history, Pilate is forever known by that one decision. He tries to wash his hands, but it stuck. It soiled and sullied his reputation forever. Choosing what to do with that man from Nazareth would be the one thing, the one judgment Pilate would be known for forever. <laughs> Imagine it all. Pilate wakes up that morning. It's an unsuspecting day. And he wakes up with Jesus standing at his doorstep. And for the next several hours, Pilate has a unique experience Pilate is able to have a personal conversation with the God of heaven and earth. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent from his own examination. Beyond that, his wife sends a message, have nothing to do with the just man. And yet, tragically for Pilate, he willingly, willfully ignored divine revelation. According to tradition, Pilate's wife, a woman by the name of Claudia Procula, eventually becomes a follower of Jesus because of the events that occurred here. In fact, tradition, and all it is is tradition, presents the argument that she became a benefactor of the Apostle Paul, became influential in the early church. In his final letter to Timothy, which you can even argue may have been his final correspondence, Paul closes his letter writing that Claudia sends her greetings. And many biblical scholars believe that this is indeed Pilate's wife, Claudia. But for Pilate, following Jesus' crucifixion, his story goes from bad to worse. In sentencing Jesus to be crucified, he had been swayed by the opinion of others. Sadly, he cared more about his present life than the one to come. And the irony of all ironies is that while Pilate made his decision, according to Mark, to gratify the crowd, to appease the crowd, according to an early church father, Eusebius, a year or so after this, the Jews riot anyway. <laughs> he tries to appease the, 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 the mob, tries to keep them from rioting, but a year passes and they riot. And what results is that Pilate ends up falling out of favor with Rome and he's banished to Vienna and disgrace, and he kills himself. Now, follow me here. But imagine the moment that Pilate, specifically Pilate, breathes his last, and he opens his eyes to an eternity standing before Jesus of Nazareth. The man he had crucified is standing in front of him very much alive. The, the rumors of resurrection were indeed true. 
probably his initial amazement, (laughs) as you could imagine, turns to horror. As Pilate's heart sinks to the realization that now his eternal fate would be determined by Jesus. Who is not just the king of the Jews, he's realized, but is the king of heaven and earth. You know the first thing that Pilate notices? It had to have been Jesus' scars. He was guilty of them, right? Not just the scars in his hands and his feet and his side, but how he just bore, as a lamb led to the slaughter, just bore the physical burdens and, 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 and results of crucifixion. Pilate looks at Jesus' face. He looks into his eyes and he can recall how that face had been bruised and, 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 and swollen. The glory Jesus is now clothed with was a stark contrast to the naked man who stood before him following the scourging, the scourging he had given him. No longer crowned with earthly thorns, Pilate can't help but notice that Jesus radiated a heavenly majesty. When Pilate had been told that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, John says that he grew terribly afraid. Now, well, those fears have been realized. Pilate falls to the ground in the throne room of heaven. As the accuser of all humanity begins crying out, I'm sure with a voice that Pilate recognized, away with him, away with him. The tables have turned. Pilate knows his fate has been sealed by a singular decision that he had made years before about Jesus. Though he's done everything to wash his hands of the matter, Pilate knows deep down that he was indeed guilty of the blood of that just person. He was far from innocent. It's in that moment that Pilate hears a heartbroken Jesus declare a timeless truth. Whoever confesses me before men, Jesus says, him I will confess before my Father. Pilate's heart, it sinks, hearing Jesus say, but whoever denies me before men, him I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Pilate knows that the verdict will not be favorable. As he sits there thinking to himself, he's filled with an immeasurable regret. How could I have been so short-sighted? Foolish. I knew the truth. My wife even mourned me. What if I had gained the whole world? Which I didn't. Only to now lose my soul. Pontius Pilate He hears, you were given every opportunity to believe in me. The voice of the judge snaps Pilate back to his reality, only to hear Jesus say, it didn't have to be this way. But since you denied me before men, depart from me, for I never knew you. The story of Pilate's life, this is how it ends. And I'm actually going to take John 19, verses 16 and 17 and dramatize them. So Jesus delivered Pilate to be sent to hell for all eternity. So they took him and led him away. And he, bearing his guilt and shame, 
went out to the place called Hades, where they cast him into eternal darkness. And what makes all of this such a terrible tragedy is that Pontius Pilate's story, much like yours and mine, didn't have to end that way. So, Father, Lord, we just let that settle.